just the other day, I was making my way home, and I was quickly reminded that Halloween is upon us. I don't, I don't know if it was the area of town that I was in, um, but houses are decorated like never before. When I was a kid, there might be a pumpkin or two out in the front, but now it's taken to a whole new level. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed this, that over the years, um, there's been a steady increase in fascination in, in death and the underworld and monsters. I'm not sure if you noticed that, but I have. And of course, these questions of dark things and scary things uh, is nothing new. It seems that we can't get away from it. It can't be helped. I remember as a kid, um, I would have vivid dreams, terrifying dreams, where my spirit and my mind wrestled with these things. There was this one dream. It was simple and dark and terrifying. I was around six years old, I'm pretty sure, and I was in the air. I was like high up, and I was like floating or like swimming through up in the air, and everything was pleasant. And then all of a sudden, it was like there was this wall, and the wall went all the way up forever and all the way to the left and all the way to the right, and there was no way around it. And there were these two big holes in this wall. And there was no sign, but instantly I knew one of them was a hole to hell and the other was a hole to heaven. Yeah, dark. Um, so I start like swimming in the air over towards heaven. Everything's going fine. And then all of a sudden, I feel this current starting to pull me in the other direction. And I'm like, no, that's not what I want. And I swim harder and harder and faster and it's pulling me more and more and I'm getting like closer and closer to the mouth of this hole going towards hell and I am freaking out and I'm like crying and screaming and like clawing my way out and just as I enter the mouth of this like big hole, I wake up and then I go cry and see mom and dad and they comfort me. Yeah, terrifying. Anyways, um, We've all had moments, thoughts, dreams, questions um, flashing through our hearts and our minds, maybe not as vivid or as disturbing as that dream that I had, but it's there. It's lingering. It's in the back of our mind, and on weekends like this, we notice that these, some of these things come to the surface. Um, all the creatures, um, all the, not creatures, all the cultures from all times have have fought against these deep, mysterious thoughts and questions. They've attempted to manage the fears of the unknown, fears of the cruel, vindictive, capricious, apathetic gods, fears of death and the unknown. They invent traditions and rituals to give them a sense of control over these powers, over these mysterious and supernatural forces. And today, even in our modern and scientific community, we still are fighting to defend against that kind of darkness. But it could be idols of progress or idols of human enlightenment, idols of science. But we can't help but desire to create for ourselves the good life while at the same time trying to fight against the darkness. The story of Jonah has something to say about the darkness. It doesn't avoid it. It doesn't pretend that fear is non-existent. We have frightening and mysterious weather patterns. We have looking death straight in the face. We have the underworld. 
we have human sacrifices and even a sea monster. In our world, tragically fascinated with darkness, Jonah responds. The story of Jonah offers an alternative reading of reality. It points to who's really in charge. It reveals a great and an eternal hope. But unlike many stories in the Old Testament, this story, right? This story, as we heard about last week, it tells the good news in unexpected and upside-down ways. So last week, we started a four-part dive into the story of Jonah, uh, a book filled with intentional hyperlinks to all over Old Testament scripture, to the entire story of God, hints and clues that there is more going on that we might see at first glance. And this has many other techniques in the book of Jonah. There's so much going on. And all of that forces us to slow down and to see that this book is meditation literature. This book is not a book for us to just read once or like a movie that you watch once, but it's something to revisit over and over and over again. That's the beauty and power of this kind of literature. Now, I hope that in this little series that two things will kind of emerge for you. It'll awaken in you a curiosity for God's word. That the authors, God's appointed historians and storytellers, the prophets and scribes, that they're up to something. And that something is more than what we first read. That this is good, that we can ponder it for a lifetime. The mysteries are deep and wide. But at the same time, as being curious with mystery, there's also clarity. God's message comes through. The good news of God's kingdom is not a secret. It's on display for us to encounter. So it's my hope that we would have the curiosity to keep learning God's word, but also recognize that there is a clarity in God's word for us to have the answers that we seek in our lives. So I want to do a first, a, a, a quick recap of where we've been to get us back into this upside down story. So, Jonah. We know that Jonah's a prophet. Jonah is one of those prophets, a representative of God to go to the people. And then we have Jonah being asked to rise up and go to Nineveh. Now, what did we learn about Nineveh? That first and foremost, Nineveh is a city that God does not want to destroy. That's first and foremost. Nineveh is not a city God wants to destroy, so he sends a messenger. He sends people, he sends Jonah to go to that nation. We also know that as the Assyrian capital, that it was a brutal place. It was dark. It was godless. They worshipped idols and they did unspeakable violence. And the evil of the city, the trouble rose up to God. And God is responding, just like the injustice of Abel's death, the injustice of Sodom, the cries of the Israelite people in slavery. It rises up to God's ear and he responds. So he says, arise, go to Nineveh. And, God, and Jonah, as we know, he rises up and doesn't go to Nineveh. He goes and runs in the opposite direction. He goes down to Joppa 
down into the boat, down into the depths of the boat. He is going as far away from God's plan and God's direction as possible. And for us and for the early readers that, that read this, they're seeing this thinking, this is, this is the prophet. This is upside down, upside down. Jonah is the upside down character. Now, I was planning, whenever, whenever you hear a pastor say I was planning, but um, I was planning to preach on chapter 2. But God just kept pulling me back. He kept inviting me to reread chapter 1. It was as if chapter 1 was not finished. And it was with that thought and with these questions in my mind that I kept asking, if Jonah is the upside-down character, what else in the story might be upside down, and why does that matter? So, today is ships, sailors, and the sea monster. So, and each one of them has a bit of a message. So let's take a look. Now, Jonah goes down to Joppa. And if you want, you can open up your Bibles and you can go to Jonah 1 and you can kind of follow along. Jonah goes down to Joppa and purchases, purchases a ticket to get on the ship. Now, in the kids' book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, also, honestly, for any age group, a fantastic book. I was, I was like 37 years old and I decided I would use this book as my devotional. And I'm not, I'm not kidding. It is excellent. What I love about this is it says this, that one ticket to not Nineveh, please. One ticket to not Nineveh. Doesn't matter where I go as long as it is not Nineveh. It's a beautiful picture of, of Jonah's desire to flee from God's presence. But there's actually so much more. And what I didn't mention last week, and this is interesting and valuable for us today, is that he goes down to Tarshish. That's where he is headed. Now, Tarshish is not just the farthest option away from following God. It is a powerful and revealing hyperlink to the entire Old Testament. When the first reader heard that this was his chosen destination, all sorts of verses and thoughts would be lighting up. Isaiah 2 12, and then I'll read 16. Hear this. Isaiah, Isaiah 2, verse 12. For the Lord of armies will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is arrogant and haughty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be brought low. And then we go to verse 16. Against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the delightful ships Isaiah 23, verse 1, Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed without house or harbor. Psalms 48, For behold, the kings arrived. They passed by together. They saw it, the holy temple of God, and they were amazed. And then later on, With the east wind, you smash the ships of Tarshish, just as it happened in Jonah. And then if we were to turn into Ezekiel, there's an entire section, Ezekiel 26 to 28. It's a massive connection to all of this. Now, here's just a snippet. Ezekiel 27, 
verse 25 to 27. The ships of Tarshish serve as carriers for your wares. You are filled with heavy cargo and you sail the sea. Your oarsmen take you out to the high seas, but the east wind will break you to pieces far out at sea. Your wealth, merchandise and wares, your mariners, sailors and shipwrights, your servants and all your soldiers and everyone else on board will sink into the heart of the sea on the day of your shipwreck. Yitzhak Berger, he's a Jewish scholar and author of a, a great book called Jonah and the Shadows of Eden. He helped me understand something that I would not have seen on my own. And he says this about Ezekiel. Ezekiel compares the glamorous Tyre. Tyre was a coastal city. It was powerful. It was big. It was connected to the Assyrian Empire. It was this glamorous Tyre, a kingdom supplied and signified by ships of Tarshish. The divine mountain and the Garden of Eden were all connected. So he's pointing and saying that these ships of Tarshish have fueled and created this perfect Eden-like environment. Now with that in mind, if accordingly, Jonah occupies a Tarshish-bound vessel that stands in parallel to those ships, this yields evidence that our protagonist seeks an Eden-like realm of the kind that Ezekiel describes. So, in other words, Tarshish is filled with great and alluring wealth. Tarshish presented everything you might hope for. It was with this wealth that the great port of Tyre became a powerhouse. It was with these ships that Solomon used to acquire wealth from all over the lands to build up Israel. It was with these ships that reached out into the known and unknown world to come back to build up the nations, to turn Israel back into the land of Eden. There was an allure to go out and reach out. And Jonah got on to one of those ships. Jonah just wasn't, wasn't just heading in the opposite direction of God's call. He was running to a false hope. He's going after his own pseudo-Eden by heading there and by paying the fare. Jonah is, is truly taking matters into his own hands. It's as if he's going to that one place where he can use the human ingenuity and human initiatives to create only what God can create. It's as if he's saying, I don't need to follow God. I can find happiness in my own Eden. I can find Eden on my own. Do you know, do you know anyone who, who isn't just fleeing from God, but is passionately and actively working to build up a perfect life? A life that doesn't need God. A life that is proving, look at what I have accomplished. I am self-made. And like Jonah, who was willing to pay the entire fare of the boat, these folks that we know are willing to work, invest, labor, put so, so much effort to create for themselves a pseudo-Eden. But we know how this story ends. And we know how that story, their story, eventually ends. It will never satisfy. The barns could be filled with treasure, 
and the heart would still fear the darkness and long for the light. Jonah running to a false Eden won't work, and our running won't work either. So off to Tarshish they go, and the next scene opens. Sailors. There's two words that I want us to think about while I read through this and work through this. The one word is hurl and fear. So, I know, hurl and fear. Um, And so, what we have here um, is is a fascinating quick picture. And it says this in in verse 4 to 5. It says, Yahweh hurls a wind. He sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were terrified or afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week but we didn't focus in on these individuals. We focused in on Jonah. So Yahweh hurls, this is actually the word that's used, hurls a wind and it causes a great storm. And everything is about to break apart. And what do these pagans do, right? They get it. They understand. They recognize, they grasp the severity of the situation and they cry out to their own gods. Their fear is real. And now we know that what Jonah's up to. Jonah in this moment has gone down below and he's like sleeping with the cargo that's being tossed around and flying and we wonder to ourselves, how in the world are you asleep? Well, these men up top are terrified. So we have this contrast, we have this upside down reality that the pagans, the sailors have spiritual intuition that something is not right. And that in their own wisdom, they are doing everything they can to solve the problem. So what do the sailors do? First, they cry out to their gods. But it's to the wrong god. It doesn't take them anywhere. Um, We know that something isn't right. They know that something isn't right, but they don't know who's in charge. So their cries, while being heard by Jonah, or by, by Yahweh, are not directed to Yahweh. So they cry out to idols. And we've seen this in our world. How often do we cry out, do do others cry out, hoping for something, reaching for something, but it's as if they're just grasping around in the darkness because they don't know where their help comes from. They know something is wrong, but all the answers they cling to are not solving the actual problem. These sailors, unlike Jonah, know that something divine, something supernatural is taking place. And the one man who knows the truth is sleeping underneath. Let's read on. After that, they hurled the cargo. So it's the same word use. God has hurled a wind, and now they are hurling their cargo to lighten the load. And this makes sense. They are lightening the boat so that the mast in the middle, like the the beam that would hold it together, when it's like up on the wave, the weight of it wouldn't crack it. So they're lightening their load. They're getting rid of all of these possessions, all of these prized possessions that might be associated with the land of Tarshish. They are letting it all go. They are understanding that in the face of death, material goods useless. They serve no purpose. So they are hurling everything they can think of off of the boat in response to this great 
disaster. When death is staring us in our face, cargo quickly moves from prized possessions to disposable weight. And in their desperation to save themselves, they are doing the same. They have the right instinct, right? They have the right desire. They're responding in a way that would make sense. But even this is not solving it. It's, they're still in the horror show. And then in comes Jonah, right? And he only indirectly answers their questions by hypocritically quoting from Psalms 95, where he's saying, Yahweh is great, the sea is his, for he made it, and the dry land, his hands formed it. But in verse 9, um, in most translations, it might say, he wor- I worship the Lord. But it actually is, I fear the Lord. And the sailors sense this disconnect. He's quoting it. He's quoting, I fear the Lord. They are the ones who actually are fearing the Lord. In verse 10, it says this, the men feared with a great fear. So at the very beginning, these men are afraid, and they're afraid of the storm. Then Jonah's like, I'm afraid, but it's clear he's not. And then these guys fear a great fear in response to that. And so we have this contrast where they are fearing the correct things. Now, now that they have the truth, they direct their fear, they direct their prayers to Yahweh. And they're desperate to do what is right. They're desperate to not kill Jonah. They don't want to kill Jonah, one of the prophets of this creator God. And uh, the NASB says it well. It says this, that the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not. Now, the English misses this just a little bit because their desperation to return to land, the same word use in Hebrew is the word repent. They were repenting in their, like they were repenting to land. And it doesn't quite land for English, but it's, it's a good little, little snippet of information that their desire to return to the shore is an act of repentance, the same word use. Have you ever done everything you can to like right the wrong, to rewrite it, to want to go back in time, to rewind the clock? That you have that sick feeling that it's just too late, right? Those words can't be taken back. The action can't be unacted. That choice can't be unchosen. And of course, you can do everything you can to make it right. And that's necessary. But even after making amends as best as you can, you're still left with the grief, the shame, the guilt. These poor guys, they're doing everything they can to save themselves. They are doing everything they can to save themselves. They're crying out. They're hurling their cargo. They're attempting to turn back. And while we learned last week that Jonah is shockingly apathetic to it all, the sailors, they understand. They recognize the storm as God's purpose and his results. That is his power over the sea. They are being the model Israelites. They are being what the Israelites have always been supposed to be. And yet, even after every attempt, the storm still rages They have tried everything they can think of. They've attempted it all. 
but they still need help. They, and later the Ninevites, are powerless. When I, when you, when we accept this one constant, that when it comes to saving ourselves, we are powerless. We can't do it. They tried, they can't do it. We try, we can't do it. We are powerless. And it's at this very point that we wonder, Jonah, like, couldn't you have just been like these heathens? <laughs> Actually cry out to God, ditch your cargo, repent, be willing to go back, but no, you're so stubborn and you force this calamity upon them. You force them to do this one terrible thing that they didn't want to do. And so in some crazy upside-down sort of way, Jonah's stubbornness is the moment that this story attaches to the entire story of God, the entire message of God, that God's chosen people, unable to do what is right, filled with sin and rebellion against their very own God, right, that Jonah is in this self-imposed exile. He's chosen to be here. He has turned his back onto God's presence. He has directed his sights away. And because of that, God has to respond himself. God has to intervene in ways that are necessary. As they are reaching out for that false Eden, as Jonah is reaching out for the false Eden, that lie that the good life is possible apart from God. And it's in this defiance, it brings us to that point where death is on the edge. There is chaos, there is terror, there is darkness. So in fear and trembling, there's just one option left. They sacrifice Jonah to certain death and the sea stops its raging. Just as the scene opens with a hurl, the scene ends with the same word, that they hurl Jonah overboard. But the journey that God has taken with these sailors leaves them forever changed. They started off afraid for their lives, crying out to their gods. But then we see in verse 16, there's a change. At this, the men greatly feared and it was not the storm, it was not the horror, it was not idols, it was not other gods. They feared the Lord, Yahweh. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. We can, we can try and save ourselves. We can try and tame the darkness, control our fears, scream into the abyss. But in the end, we will always and will always only have one option there's always only been one option. It's not even our option. It was God's option, a sacrifice. And we know that the story doesn't end there. And now, the sea monster. Finally, we have the sea monster. This is a picture of Tiamat. Uh, it is the original goddess of the Mesopotamian area that was at the beginning of creation. And after, just as she's about to be killed by her, one of her children, she spawns all of these dangerous and dark goddess, gods and goddesses and creatures of the deep. And it's this like big whole thing and it's filled with terror and fear. The ancient Near Eastern cultures feared 
the sea. They feared the creatures that leaked, uh, lurked below. Legends, myths, creation stories often involved creatures of the deep. Israel's neighbors were steeped in it. And the biblical authors, they knew this. They understood this. They were very well aware. They also believed in these monsters. The big difference was they believed that God was in control over these monsters. That they were extremely powerful creatures, but they were not gods. And they were under the rule of their creator. You can read about words like the Leviathan, or in Hebrew, the Tanin. Um, these were these creatures of mystery. In Psalms, 40, or in Psalms yeah, 148, it says, Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters in all the depths. Or in Psalms uh, 74, You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. So we have these really fascinating pictures. But this is important. These sea monsters were adopted from mythological imagery um, for the, of Israel's neighbors. But the Israel authors, the biblical authors, they understood that it was Yahweh alone that was in charge. But as Jonah is plunging, falling into the depths, he's going down into this dark place, the reader is probably anticipating that this is what's going to happen, that the tanin is going to come and grab and devour, that this is the end. But instead, it's a great big fish. We don't kind of, we, we miss that. We don't understand what might be actually at work in the, the humor and the comedy that's at, at play here. Let me explain it this way. You're watching Jaws 2, all right? You weren't expecting that? Okay. Well, you're watching Jaws 2, and they're like on the boat, and then there's all of a sudden someone like falls off the boat, and then you hear this like, da-dum, ba-dum, and you're like, oh no, oh no. And he's like, and then all of a sudden you hear this like, ah, screaming and thrashing, and then the, the camera pans down, and the guy is in the water holding hands with an otter. That's... That's the kind of comedy that's at work here, that we're expecting the tanin, and we just get a big fish. God is clearly in control. God is at work using creation to bring about his salvation work for all people. Philip Carey, he's a fantastic writer. He, he puts it this way. The great fish is a comic version of an ancient nightmare. The great monster of the deep that represent chaos and destruction, the flooding and undoing of the world. In bearing witness to the power of the God of Israel, Scripture often reckons with these nightmares of ancient Near Eastern mythology and puts the images to its own uses. In Jonah, the nightmare is turned into a comedy. The creature that swallows Jonah up is not the terrible monsters of the deep, but just a great big fish. Call it a monster if you wish. It's no big deal. Wherever you go in the world, the Lord who created it is there before you and can prepare a way for you, even if the way is a great big fish. 
It's a great quote. Everything is upside down. The moment of Jonah's death by a great and terrible tannin is miraculously transformed to become his salvation by a great big fish. God is in control. And then with certain death, there's this mystery has now become his redemption. And while the sailors are up top worshiping God for saving them, down in the depths, God is saving Jonah. This God, our God, is not like those other gods. He's relentless in his love. And he extends it to the furthest reaches of not just the world, but of everywhere. It's kind of this picture. It's more than everything we could imagine. Now, you might try to find Eden by pursuing all of the great wealth this world has to offer, but you'll never find happiness. You might cry out and seek salvation through science, through politics, relationships, other religions, being spiritual. That, all of that won't take you out of the darkness. And the way, when the waves are crashing and mortality and eternity are staring you in the face and you wish that you could do things over, there's only one thing that can take away the guilt and the shame. Jonah points to it, but Jesus fully reveals it. God's son, the perfect Israelite, not the rebellious Israelite, who is willing to be hurled onto the cross and was swallowed up by the grave for three days. And he goes down into the underworld, the place of the dead, but he rises to new life. And with that new life, we are able to find our salvation in one and only Jesus Christ. Try as we might, fight as we might, work as hard as we might work, chasing after Eden, we will never make it. But if we can choose to put all of ourselves, everything onto the person of Jesus, the one and only true sacrifice, that is where life is found. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. The story of Jonah is fascinating and beautiful and points us to the cross in interesting and unexpected ways. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, in your mercy we come to you like the sailors who tried everything. They cried out to any God that they thought might listen. They threw out their cargo. They tried to return and none of it worked. None of it would stop the chaos. The only thing that stops, Lord, is not us. It's you and it's your son, Jesus Christ, choosing to die a sinner's death to save us of our sins because you love us that much. 
You love the sailors that much. You love Nineveh that much. You love us that much. And Lord, I just ask that you would speak to the hearts of those here who have never said yes to you. That they would hear deep in their hearts and through this preaching, through this word, that you care about them and that you are their only hope. And that there is such good, good hope, light and freedom and joy in putting everything on you instead of trying to do it in our own strength. Lord, I praise your name and I thank you for your story. I thank you that Jonah points us to your mission that you've been up to since the beginning of time, finding and reclaiming your lost people. Lord, I thank you that after all of this, the sailors cried out to you, not some unknown God. Lord, may the challenges that we face point us back to you. May we cry out to you. May we make vows to you. May we serve you now and always. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me to receive a benediction? May you go knowing that the God that we serve is relentless in his love and that he has made a way for you by the sacrifice, the gift of his one and only son. Go with that strength. Go with that power. Go with that light. In Jesus' name, amen.